Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Addiction Treatments That Work. I'm your host, Kenneth Anderson, and tonight our guest is uh, Rebecca Tiger, Ph.D. from Middlebury College in Vermont. Uh, she is the author of Judging Addicts, a book about drug courts. And before we start the show, oh, I forgot to say our date, and our date is November, it is December 8th of 2014. And before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org. Our guest, Rebecca Tiger, is with us. I'm going to bring her on right now. Hello, Rebecca. Hello. How are you doing this evening? I'm How great, are you doing thank this you. I'm very well, good, it's thanks. Great to have, it's great to have you on the show. Thank um, you. And tell us a little bit about your book. What what uh, made you want to write about drug courts? Um, there are a lot of sort of factors that went into why I wanted to write about drug courts. I think on a sort of smaller level, I had been working uh, in public health doing some research on um, drug treatment, and this issue of coerced drug treatment kept coming up, and I didn't, it seemed to me it was something that was um, important and interesting, but I didn't see a lot of critical work about drug court. So, for me, part of of this book was about um, coming up with a way of thinking about drug courts that got it out of the framework, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, um, that seemed to dominate, which was that they were better than punishment. Um, another reason, which I think is a somewhat more academic reason, um, had to do with the fact that I was doing a lot of work around punishment, reading histories of punishment, and I found that, in general, the sort of assumption of scholars of punishment, who were very good at critiquing <clears throat> the problems with the system, would end up saying things like, oh, we just need more treatment. That will fix it. And so having seen from my own work the sort of difficulties people had who were being managed by the criminal justice system and managed by treatment, um, it struck me as a as a as an important moment to write something about drug courts and write something that was a critique of drug courts because I had yet to see that. Um, I think in a broader level, I've always been really interested in this concept of addiction as an idea, as a historical artifact, as something that has a a certain knowledge to it, again, a history to it. And, and so drug courts in some ways seemed like a, a really good sort of um, vehicle to think about addiction as an idea. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I know you did quite a bit of uh, the history of... Uh, what do I want to say? Well, the history of punishment, as you said, and uh, yep. reform movements and the uh, different ideas and medicalization ideas. Can you tell mm-hmm. us something about that history? Yeah, so what I what I had to do in order to get this book to sort of make sense and to make sense for me is I really needed to put it in, um, in the middle of two, two really sort of bodies of literature and two histories that have often remained separate in terms of the writing about it. And so one history is really thinking about the history of punishment. And then the other is thinking about the kind of history of medicalization. When did this concept medicalization enter into our thinking? 
When did it enter into our thinking about addiction? What does it mean to call addiction a disease? Because really in my book I argue that even though addiction might be conceptualized as a disease at a kind of, at one level, once it comes in contact with the criminal justice system, really the punitive side um, prevails. And so it's kind of a, you know, it's a sort of a quasi-medico-moral disorder. And so the history of punishment, um, the reason I was really interested in that was I really wanted to trace the kind of increasing criminalization of more aspects of life. Um, I wanted to focus on um, sort of when drug, the idea of stopping drugs became um, such a concern for um, the criminal justice system. And, you know, other people have focused really so sort of in depth on that, but I wanted to to connect that history to thinking about addiction. Um, and if you look, for instance, with, you know, um, in 1914 with the Harrison Anti-Narcotic Act, that was sort of a beginning of, not the beginning, but it was a really sort of important moment when addiction as a kind of disorder, but also as a kind of crime when those things were cemented. So I was interested in kind of conceptually where did these two seemingly different histories um, start to overlap. Mm-hmm. Now, I know Thomas Zaz has uh, referred to this as it's a moral, modical, a moral model wearing a medical mask, is mm-hmm. something he said, and yeah. that uh, really struck home with me. Uh, we don't call behaviors that we like and want to encourage, like learning calculus, we don't call them mm-hmm. diseases. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't. Be, it doesn't destigmatize. Uh, we only call behaviors diseases when we think they're bad. Yeah, yeah, and I think part of it. I mean, it's it, it becomes complicated because if you look at if you look at the history of addiction, I mean, what does it mean to say it's a disease? What do we mean when we call something a disease? I mean, people. And what do we mean when we say something's an addiction? Right? Some people say, "Oh, I'm so addicted to exercise. Oh, I'm so addicted to chocolate." And, they don't mean I'm sick and I need some kind of sustained, perhaps coerced intervention by a medical professional. Um, but so the disease, you know, there's a there's a sort of well-known book in um, in sociology uh, that sort of is very important in the field of medicalization that argues that we've moved from sort of badness to sickness and medicine is the new way in which we talk about badness. But my argument in judging addicts is actually we have – it's really badness and sickness because addiction really is when you when you talk to people who are who are concerned with controlling it and I spoke with drug court people people who were involved in drug courts I mean they're really their objection to it is is a moral objection but that moral objection then gets couched in the language of neuroscience when I did my research I mean people were saying oh it's a brain disease and I would say well how do we know this and, you know, people would say, I don't know. You'd have to be, one person said, you'd have to be a Neanderthal not to know know that. Everyone <laughs> knows it's a brain disease. But but what that meant didn't really translate into, they weren't arguing for any kind of neuroscientific treatment. They were arguing for abstinence-based treatment that often didn't have a, any kind of, you know, quote, medical component in the way we would understand um, medical treatment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm familiar. The standard treatment is still 12-step based, which is basically cure by God. It's faith healing. It's mm-hmm. a accept God, uh, ask God to cure your disease. Yeah. 
Yeah, and the treatment. So that is one thing. So I, so my book is really interested, um, and, and not my book, I'm interested, and I talk about it in my book, the broader, you know, what is the cultural moment that makes coerced drug treatment not only preferable but actually really sort of valued by people? I was interested in, one person I interviewed referred to it as enlightened coercion. And I was interested in mm-hmm. how this thing, this coerced treatment, um, ha- was so popular, and actually, you will see very few critiques of it from the left or the right. Very few people mm-hmm. critique coerced treatment. Some people critique it on just sort of a standard that nothing should be coerced. But those are really fringe voices. Very few people see it as as a as a bad thing, and most people think it's actually really good and heartwarming. And in fact, my my real sort of introduction to drug courts, I mentioned this in the book, was a before I was doing my public health work, I was reading an article in the New York Times about drug courts and about judges who coerce people into treatment. They care about them. They cajole them. And I sort of teared up as I read that. And I was like, oh, that's really wonderful. And then I had to stop and think, wait a second, why was I thinking that the courts coercing someone into sobriety was a wonderful thing with, you know, shame and rewards and these kinds of things. But, I mean, I think one of the, one of the kind of complicated, I mean, in some ways, I think, coerced drug treatment becomes really complicated because it intersects with all these ideologies. And so, you know, drug courts will use, they use AA. Um, Some of them actually will mandate a very, not many, but some will mandate, will allow people to get replacement therapy, methadone. That's not the majority of drug courts. Mm -hmm. Usually they're in some kind of abstinence-based treatment, residential or outpatient. Um, It's, yeah, sobriety, it's sobriety-focused, therapeutic community or or AA model, because what I what I actually really found, which was sort of fascinating in a way, is that addiction. And I, I have found I teach about drugs. I teach about the idea of addiction. I've been teaching about this for years. I've been writing and thinking about all of this for years. Is that many people will say addiction is a disease, but they have no problem deciding that they know how to treat someone. So, you know, you wouldn't necessarily say, oh, you've got brain cancer, well, let me perform the surgery if you didn't have the training. And yet with drug treatment and addictions, first of all, so many people are very comfortable um, diagnosing someone with addiction. Um, And they're Mm -hmm. very comfortable saying they know what they think that person needs to get cured. And so what you have is really with drug courts, you have... You know, I'll say it, they're well-meaning, some of them very smart, criminal people who are really involved in the legal system who are deciding treatment is best for these people. So right there, and so then treatment becomes, treatment's where the punishment happens, but it's secondary in terms of who's leading the discussion about um, about coerced drug treatment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I'm a former consumer of addiction treatment services. So speaking from that perspective, you know, the first time I heard about drug courts, it's like, this is horrible. This is terrible. And, you know, I've experienced treatment. Treatment, uh, Drug treatment in general is uh, a... It's a form of punishment, basically, primarily. It's Mm -hmm. about punishment. And it's it's like a lesser punishment than prison. Although mm-hmm. for some of us uh, that object to the religious coercion, some people think it's worse than prison. I yeah. know some people that went that chose to go to jail instead of AA meetings for their DUI because they said, "I will not, I will not uh, bow down to that higher power." Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think that 
I, you know, I'm, so I'm working on a new project. Um, I'm looking at the survey alcohol monitoring technology. You might have heard of SCRAM. It's an um, alcohol monitoring anklet. Um, mm-hmm. And other technology that's increasingly being used by probation, parole um, for pretrial release, and so I've been speaking with the manufacturer. I'm, I'm interested in in the technology and the people involved in the companies that are selling these to the criminal justice system. And what what I'm finding is that this kind of I mean, what what's starting to happen with these technologies is these technologies are in essence becoming the treatment. And so, for instance, I spoke to the CEO of one of the major um, devices who said, you know, this is really radically transforming how we understand treatment because you can take a chronic alcoholic, slap this monitoring device on their ankle, threaten prison if they drink, and lo and behold, they stop drinking. That was his that was his discussion of it. And so he said, so maybe AA will be nice as a side treatment, but really it's the threat of incarceration. Other people I've spoken with who manufacture these devices, and again, these aren't people who come from addiction treatment. They're not people who come from punishment. They're described technologists. They're entrepreneurs, and they mm-hmm. sort of want to get in what they see as an, a growing business. And they're, they're basically like the device should be the primary thing, and then AA should be the secondary thing. So they're really sort of, in some ways, it's like a free rider issue. They're just deciding, okay, well, we'll I think we, I think you should put the device on someone, mandate they go to AA, but it's really the device that's the thing that these companies are selling, and it's the device that probation and parole, it's the devices that they're buying. And then they're just sort of adding on some AA to say, okay, yes, we understand there's a behavioral component. And so I think this issue with especially coerced mandates into AA is only going to become more salient um, as time goes on. Well, there's a really interesting thing about this device that you just mentioned, because here we were talking about addiction is a brain disease. People are out Mm -hmm. of control. They can't control their behavior. Yet as soon as you slap the anklet on them and tell them you'll go to jail if you drink, they're immediately in control of their behavior. Yeah, and it's really to me, it sort of shows that we don't think it's a that that has that hasn't actually taken hold. Despite sort of, I think there was a period of time when you know neuroscience or brains became the sort of dominant explanation for things. I've actually seen that sort of taper off a little bit. I mean, what these mm-hmm. companies are essentially saying is, you know, you just threaten people with prison, and they, you know, the majority of them will change their behavior. That some people won't, but most of them will. Now, this becomes a really, mm-hmm. I think, a complicated question, sort of morally and ethically, what does that mean? I mean, you know, some people have talked about these kind of mobile surveillance technologies as kind of, you know, you're always inside because you're in essence never out. Many of them now are combined with GPS. So one of the main manufacturers, um, alcohol monitoring systems that makes the device called SCRAM now has a sort of GPS alcohol monitoring device in one. And so in essence, people are sort of being monitored 24 hours a day. Um, so it kind of complicates this notion of, you know, are you in, are you out, are you, you know, and, and what does treatment mean, what does it mean to be cured? I think, you know, the CEO of Alcohol Monitoring Systems in an interview with me said he considers these really, his, he aspires to create a disruptive technology. And I think in many ways these devices are disruptive to a dominant thinking about addiction that sort of has has come, you know, to prevail, which is you need sustained treatment. Right, so then you have the whole sort of mm-hmm. treatment industrial complex, and and they don't like these devices, at least according to the CEO of um, alcohol mm-hmm. monitoring systems, because it's kind of saying, I don't think you need that. 
You need this other thing. Mm-hmm. You don't need mm-hmm. this sustained, um, you know, fully staffed um, treatment program to get people to stop using alcohol. So it's very. I'm I'm sort of fascinated with the way um, our the way conceptions of addiction are changing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do have to say. Um, I, I kind of find these morally abhorrent, these uh, mm-hmm. anklet devices. What I would like to see, and I have talked about this before, I would like to see every automobile in the U.S. equipped with the uh, ignition interlock, you know, the breathalyzer yeah. ignition interlock, so nobody could drink and drive. I think that would be a great oh. technological advance to stop everybody from drinking and driving. Yeah, and I think that, you know, I think the way I've come to see it, and, you know, this isn't like an original idea, but the fundamental difference is it posits that the problem with drinking and driving is not drinking, it's not driving, it's the combination of the two. What Scram Mm -hmm. and these other companies are trying to do is come in and say, no, it's not that, it's that the person should be sober all the time. And so I think a big question arises, if I have been stopped for drinking and driving, why do I have to be sober all the time? Um, and I think this is where the this is where things like the Scram and other alcohol monitoring technology. There are these new devices that are cheaper. These in-home breathalyzers that will take use face recognition software. They're positing a different kind of problem. And I think this is where I think it's um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. You know, why does it matter if someone gets drunk in their house? Why should the mm-hmm. state have any standing in that? Why should probation and parole arrest someone for that? But that's how the, this technology is sort of transforming it. And I don't know. You know, I've been trying to look at sort of the takeover of the market. I mean, certainly, so I just was at the probation and parole um, workshop in New Orleans. They have a workshop every, twice a year. And I was in the expo hall where all the companies that manufacture these devices, you know, including GPS tracking were and you know there were very few that manufacture the ignition interlock. I mean the really big, the big market mm-hmm. now are the anklets, and the in and the in-home remote breathalyzers. So, I mean I think you're thinking about it in terms of well the problems drinking and driving, that's a very mm-hmm. different um, conception than the problem is the drinker. Mhm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean I think from a public health standpoint. I mean, I think everybody has a right to drink if they want to. Everybody has mm-hmm. a right to drive if they want to. Because, look, if we got rid of driving, if we you know, had prohibition of the automobile, we wouldn't have any more automobile accidents if yeah. it was actually enforceable, <laughs> yeah. which it probably would not be. <laughs> It'd be difficult, but, but you, know, you could have a much better public transportation system. So the, I mean, this was the insight. I don't know, was it Joseph Gusfield or someone, you know, someone basically saying you have to. The problem is, you know, you have to drive to drink, and then we're surprised that people drink and drive. Because mm-hmm. most places, you have to drive to get there to drink. You can't get there by public transportation. And then we have this problem, but I think what's happening with these devices that are on the body of the person is that we're individualizing it. And we're not seeing it about our, as, as about a problematic relationship between the driver and the car and drinking, but more so a problematic relationship of the person to themselves that becomes much trickier and more complicated to address. But in some ways, that's also echoing, you know, the original theories of addiction, which is it's something in, it's a defect within a person and that that defect Mm -hmm. has to be rooted out. So. Mm -hmm. Just a little side note. Um, I looked up the statistics in Japan uh, some time ago about uh, 
drunk driving fatalities compared to the United States. And Interesting, yeah. Surprise, surprise, they're 27 times fewer uh, alcohol-related traffic fatalities in Japan. Well, as someone that lived there for six years, everybody that's going to go drink gets on the train. They come back on the train drunk. They pass out on the floor on the train drunk. But nobody's yeah. drinking and driving. It's just not conceivable to the... The, any normal Japanese person. You have to be really, really deviant to even conceive of drinking and driving there. Interesting, yeah. So what do you think that what do you think the difference is? What's accounted for that different way of thinking about it? Um, well first of all, I mean two thirds of people commute to work by train in the first place. Yeah. People rarely ever drive. It's really difficult to drive. Uh the streets are horribly congested and you know yeah, so it's driving is just not the the normal mode of transport to begin with, and yeah. then it's considered you know really completely uh, socially unacceptable to drink and drive. So you know just you just don't do that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean we have this uh, you know obviously very car focused culture. We put a lot of money into highway construction and the automobile industry. So you know it's much easier to say okay we're just going to strap a device on someone and. Um, not let them drink and throw them in jail if they do, than to address a much bigger problem, which is which extends beyond drinking and driving. It's probably you know we're very car dependent culture, and um, that's got its own challenges. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd like to see higher gas taxes to pay for public transportation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great idea. But let's let's get back on the topic now of. Uh, drug courts and about and deviance i mean social deviance is a really important idea you know as someone that's studying psychology you know i think very often psychologists don't have enough conception of uh, social deviance they're not informed enough by sociologists and anthropologists And, you know deviance is a culturally relative thing you know homosexuality has been deviant in various cultures, and there are other cultures where it's not deviant. In ancient Greece, uh, it wasn't deviant when you read Plato. And currently, in contemporary the United States, I mean, being homophobic is really bad. Uh, being homosexual mm-hmm. is just fine for most people. Yeah. But it's not that long ago, 1950s, um, you know, the argument was, is homosexuality a disease or is it a crime? Do we put people in prison mm-hmm. for it? Or do we give them chemical castration or some other yeah, horror? Yeah. Cure them, yeah. Yeah, I think that, you know, this is where psychology and sociology, I think, really have don't meet, especially the mainstream of psychology now, which is either behavioral or there is the kind of neuroscience component. I mean, sociology and certainly the field of it, which, um, which I'm in or I, you know, study is, about deviance as a as a sort of socially constructed phenomenon, I'm most interested not in the deviant act, and I put that in quotes, but the societal response. And so, you know, it's through that response that I think so, we can read so much about a culture or society. So the reason in the introduction of my book I spend some time talking about the sociology of deviance is that I think it's important to understand sort of historically, which many sociologists have done, how the trend seems to be to give someone a deviant identity, let's say addict, um, because we 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 see that as a deviance, right? It's 
and and you know i would i would love us to get to a, a place where either we don't have to use that term or we use it and we use it in a non-judgmental way but that's but now we sort of it is it is an implied judgment and and of course built into that theory is once an addict always an addict so there's an implied judgment there's an implied notion that something's wrong there's an implied notion that you need some kind of sustained, sustained intervention to get better but there's also the idea that you can't ever cure yourself so you'll always sort of be in that deviant category and that that's historically how deviant categories have worked. I mean, sex offenders is a perfect example of that. Um, so that that people are put in these categories and it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to get out of them. And that from a sociology of deviance perspective, we would say that that's not an unfortunate side effect of the construction of deviance. That's its point, is to always have this group that can't ever sort of fully get back to being, quote, normal. And Addiction is in some ways a perfect example of that. And you see people who push against that, right? People who say, I'm not an addict, and Mm -hmm. then we say they're in denial about their Mm -hmm. addiction Mm -hmm. so that they're never really allowed to say, I'm not that thing or I'm not going to adopt that identity. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's interesting research among, you know, you know, people who kind of, this this natural recovery idea, people who stop or control their Mm -hmm. drug use on their own, um, which is, of course, the majority of people. And, um, you know, uh, these two researchers found that one of the, um, you know, the important things that allowed them to do that was that they didn't adopt an identity of an addict. And that didn't become, and, and so in Deviance, too, we study not only the identity, but how that ident- identity becomes your master status, becomes what you are. I am an addict. Mm-hmm. Um, other mm-hmm. things secondarily, but that's primarily what I am. But people who don't sort of fall into that and resist it tend to sort of do better um, around this thing that we call deviant because they don't—it's not their whole identity—and they re- and they refuse, they reject that um, sort of labeling. And so that's why I think it's important to think of it within that history and see what what does that labeling do. Now, psychology, of course, largely is based—not all of it, but much of it's based on labeling. I mean, that's what it does is it mm-hmm. gives that label, that label becomes a way of knowing something. Um, and it's an inter- you know, it's always very interesting when people, you know, sociopath or the common word, you know, sociopath seems to be a common one now. Um, but that label is very powerful, and that's, I guess, its point in a way, is to sort of sep- isolate someone, separate them out, make them knowable in certain kinds of ways. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh- I I am interested though in the new DSM, the DSM five, and yeah. I think that the the APA has made a good deal of progress, at least with substance use disorders, in the new categorizations that they actually mm-hmm. recognize that they can range from mild to moderate to severe. They recognize that their spontaneous remission um, is common. Uh, they they're not stuck mm-hmm. anymore in once an addict always an addict. So I, I think there's been a lot of progress with the APA. You know I think so. I haven't I've read I've read it over once. I haven't spent a lot of time with the new DSM. I'm actually going to note that, that that's something I want to do. But but I guess I guess I would still just say push a little and say the fact that it's sort of even in the DSM. I mean this is mm-hmm, one mm-hmm. of the one of the things you could argue with this kind of oh, well, there's mild, there's moderate, is that it's increasing it. It's increasing who potentially can be called an addict. 
And so I'm mm-hmm. always a little wary of that category expansion. And you've really seen that happen with addiction. I mean, who can be an addict? You know, what's problematic drinking? And a lot of that's happening now with alcohol. Um, you know, what's what's a problematic drinker? And people are trying to, oh, if you drink every day or if you have a glass, you know. It's, so in some ways, um, it's interesting that they're expanding, but at the same time, it is the DSM that's expanding it. And when it expands definitional categories, you know, as a sociologist who studies that process, I'm always a little skeptical. Well, you know, I can uh, I I can agree... I don't know that it should be in the DSM at all. I don't think it should hmm. be considered a mental disorder. I mean, they used to talk about a, an op, an opiate habitué. It's a person who has an opium habit. It's a yeah. habitual use. And, you know, when we look at, we have all this wonderful data now. The government has done wonderful research, you know, NIAAA mm-hmm. with NISARC, with, uh, you know, and NIDA with the, National Drug Survey is wonderful data. We know most people get over addictions on their own. Uh, they mm-hmm. do tend to last a long time. But, um, and I think we're coming, at least a lot of people I know, and my own approach is overcoming bad habits with your drug use, with your intoxicant use. It's a matter of skills building. That's what it's about. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of people have a co-occurring disorder. They have depression, anxiety, PTSD, something like that, and that needs a separate mm-hmm. psychological treatment. But, you know, dealing with the uh, substance use, it's it's a skills-building thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, so, my, again, my, you know, my my sort of take on all this is I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not trained in psychology. I'm not trained in addiction medicine. I'm sort of someone who looks at how we talk about it and what, and what that means at a, you know, at any given cultural moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what's interesting about the skills building is that, you know, the drug court people will will concede that and they'll say, you know, but these are people who aren't going to learn their skills and the skills on their own. So the force of the court is really important for teaching them it. And so it's interesting how they will sort of incorporate a kind of skills building behavioral modification model, but argue that as as someone who I interviewed said, force is the best medicine. It's really the best thing is to to get people to change is if you can threaten them with prison um or you can threaten mm. them with the loss of a visit with their child or you can threaten them take away something that really means something to them and that's what the, the as every, everyone I interviewed said the court has the power to do that like no one else can and so so it's interesting how that then gets incorporated into a mo- a coercive model well you know the problem is that the court doesn't care about addiction at all. They're, they have no concern about addiction. They're concerned mm-hmm. about drug use. Uh, they don't mm-hmm. want to teach people to be moderate heroin users. And no. a lot of addicted heroin users do moderate uh, when yeah. they're on their own. And yeah. they, they actually can continue to moderate. But the yeah. drug courts don't want to see moderate heroin use. I mean, most of the people there, I mean, lots of people in the drug courts aren't addicts. They are drug users. They are users of illegal drugs, and that's why they're there. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think there's a couple of, I think there's a couple of things going on, but, you know, I think a broader issue is that as a culture, we see treatment as as being, the, the end result of treatment should be abstinence. 
we do mm-hmm. not have a sort of broad discussion of moderation as a goal. We don't really, mm-hmm. I mean, harm reduction as a broad, uh, you know, nationwide philosophy is just not there. Um, uh, so I so drug court in that way is just a reflection of a broader emphasis on sobriety as the end goal of drug treatment. If you're not sober, that means treatment didn't work. That's the reigning ideology that's, of course, reinforced by the majority of the of drug treatment programs and providers. So to that extent, you know, the people I spoke with, I think they really did, you know, care, in quotes, about addiction. And they would often say that the court needs to intervene in increasing aspects of people's lives because they have to prevent their addiction. They have to stop their addictive behavior. And in order to do that, they have to overstep, but it's overstepping in the name of getting this person better, so it's okay. But I think the issue, again, is a broader one, which is that most of the people involved have that sort of armchair understanding of addiction that I could you know, go up to just sort of an at random person on the street and they would say to me probably something very similar to what drug court people say about addiction. It's just this sort of mm-hmm. cultural idea we have. That's why I'm I'm most interested in sort of where these notions come from, and then and then thinking about changing them at that level. But but so drug court to me just reflects a broader ideology that you know addiction is a problem, and that it's a problem wh- whose cure is abstinence. And if someone can't maintain that on their own, then it might as well be coerced. Um, and I think that's a very common understanding outside of drug courts as well as within it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. And people believe, I mean, with the exception of alcohol, caffeine, and probably marijuana these days, mm-hmm. uh, most people believe all the other drugs that are absolutely addictive. If you smoke crack once, you're going to become a crack addict. If you do heroin once, yeah. you're going to be wind up addicted. Um and it's totally false, but I, I think that's driving a lot of this. It is, and I think, you know, it's interesting. Marijuana is so fascinating. You know, if you look at sort of the, you know, the panics around it and, you know, reefer madness, it was going to cause people to, like, mm-hmm. rape and kill and commit suicide, and et cetera, et cetera. And now, you know, it's now some people are like, it's not even a drug. But so mm-hmm. in some ways, marijuana is really fascinating to see that shift, but but what I what I get sort of alarmed by is when people, in order to help in, enact that shift, say, well, marijuana is so different than these other, quote, hard drugs. So that's why it should be treated differently. So in order to get marijuana decriminalized or eventually legalized, some people are arguing that these other ones should be illegal because they're so addictive. And I think that's a real, you know, I think it's a real uh, challenge to drug policy reformers to think, well, to think about instead of separating these out, what if we what if we talked about them together, and what if we talked mm-hmm. about the effects of prohibition across the board? It's a harder sell because people think again. If you go up to your random person, they will tell you what they know about heroin. Very few people will say, "What's heroin? I don't know what that is." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Most people know, and they know what it you know that of course it, you become immediately an addict. People have all these theories, and and um. It would be great if more of the sort of marijuana discussion, and I, and I know there's a strategic reason for sort of separating out marijuana and saying it's different, um, but but one sort of maybe unintended consequence of that is it's actually cementing certain fixed ideas people have about other drugs. 
Yeah, I think that's very true. Um, I know if you talk to Ethan Nadelman at uh, Drug Policy yeah. Alliance, um, and I like Ethan, he's a friend of mine, but he wants uh, yeah. marijuana legalization. He's, he does not want heroin legalization. He's not behind yeah. that at all. Uh, he might favor uh, prescription heroin, uh, such yeah. as the, the heroin-assisted treatment, but he's not going to yeah. say, no, everybody should be free to buy any drug they want. It's their own business. The government's got no right to yeah. tell people, you know, uh, yeah. As somebody said, you know, the the rule of the government stops at the surface of my skin. I'm the master beneath my own skin. I'm the master of my own body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think. Yeah, I mean that doesn't. That's that's not the dominant um, way. I think we have of thinking about things. Ethan, you know, I I 100 uh, percent respect Ethan. I think the work of his organization, the Drug Policy Alliance, mm-hmm. is really great. You know, they've made decisions and 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 they're coming. You know, they're seeing positive. Um, results with some with some of what they're doing around marijuana to focus on that to sort of you know I know there's been some critiques that in doing so what critiques from from people who are really con- concerned with prison reform and you know the egregious sentences people are getting you know have said that one of the problems is by saying you know by separating out nonviolent drug offenders from everyone else they're kind of inadvertently saying well those people can rot in prison but not these people and I don't and I know I know people who work for Drug Policy Alliance and I. No, that's not what they think. Um, you know, I think I think it was a, a political and strategic decision, and I think it's probably the right one. I mean, I think there's a hope among some people at Drug Policy Alliance that the slow transformation in marijuana will then that other drugs will follow. I'm, you know, I'm not sure. I've been following sort of what's happening with heroin. I live in Rutland, Vermont, which was featured within the past year and an article in the New York times and called, you know, the epicenter of the quote epidemic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and here, you know, people's attitudes about heroin are not, um, not less, you know, their, their vitriol against it is not lessening. Um, I see just what's actually happening is this distinct is a cementing again, as I mentioned of this distinction between marijuana and things like heroin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's, it's the people that hate the heroin. They never hang out with heroin users. They don't mm-hmm. know them. I mean, I decided, that, you know, my vice was alcohol, and I still like yeah. alcohol sometimes, but in much uh, much less frequent doses than I used to. Yeah. Um, but uh, I was interested in alcohol for personal reasons, and I wanted to learn how to do harm reduction for it. And yeah. where do you go to study harm reduction? How do you learn it? Well, I said the only place to go and learn this is to go to a needle exchange. So I've yeah. been I've been connected with needle exchanges for the past uh, 12 years or so, volunteering yeah. or having friends there. I know lots of heroin users. I know lots of controlled heroin users. I know some really nice people that currently use heroin. Some that uh, quit a long time ago. Uh, and you know, and this really messed up people that use heroin too. So you know, it's a whole continuum. But you know, I've been there. I've been around these people, so I know. You know, yeah. it's just not us and them. Well, that's a really hard. I think that I think what you just said, the sort of us and them, is kind of one of the foundational issues that I see um, that that presents a challenge to our less our moving away from a punitive or really a moral view of drugs. I mean, I I went to so I'm involved with the. Uh, syringe exchange in Rutland um, where I live prior to that and how I got involved was that I had gone to a major pharmacy I think it's Dwayne Reed it's around a couple blocks from where I live 
And I went to the pharmacist and I saw a big sign and it said, we will no longer sell syringes without a prescription. In Vermont, you can't, pharmacies can sell them without a prescription, but it's their choice. So I went to the pharmacist and I said, well, why did you make that decision? And she said, well, people are using it to inject heroin using the syringes. And I said, well, isn't that a good thing? Don't you want them to use clean syringes? And she looked shocked and said, no, my hope is that they go somewhere else, that they leave Rutland and go somewhere else. And I, you know, I got angry at her and said, you know, you're a community health provider. That's a really interesting stance to take. But I also realized she works for a large corporation. But I think that that's fundamentally an, an attitude that's a real problem is that they're they're the problem. And if we, if they just go somewhere else, we won't have this problem anymore. I think that's really, you know, wishful thinking, um, verging on magical mm-hmm. thinking. But I also think it's because you don't, you know, I mean, what, what's so fascinating to me about working at the syringe exchange is, you know, this woman at the pharmacy who thinks she's insulated herself probably, you know, goes to family events and picnics around people who are heroin users and doesn't know it. And mm-hmm. so I, so this idea that they're somehow different or they ruined, you know, this was another part of the narrative that they, you know, this town's trying to make a comeback and they've ruined it. Who's the they? Um, so I'm always sort of fascinated with that notion that um, they're somehow someone else. And and that's why I kind of like the idea of a drug user's union or, you know, a sort of... Because, you know, my question always is who... If we had a drug user's union, who wouldn't be in it in some ways? I mean, there are very <laughs> few people who don't use drugs. Um, mm-hmm. Very right? true, I mean, very true. It's kind of all of us. Well, I know that uh, one of the unions, uh, they won't admit you for membership unless you use an illegal drug. You can't uh, get oh. admission. Um, that's, huh. uh, my, friend okay. Shiloh, my friend Shiloh Murphy is uh, running that one. And, you know, it, we're very close friends. And, you know, I said, you know, could I be like an advisory board member? He's like, no, we can't let you in. You only drink alcohol. You don't shoot heroin. <laughs> you know, so. Is that the San Francisco but, uh, one, or which one is that? Um, he's uh, he's based in uh, Washington with the People's Harm okay. Reduction Alliance, and I think his is uh, um, oh I can't remember the name of it, uh, but it's not the San Francisco one, but it's it's one of them. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I was I was hoping I think that the San Francisco one, you know, I've I've you know I've read it things that they've written and I've seen, you know, they have a really interesting documentary they made about themselves and I was sort of was hoping that something mm-hmm, like that mm-hmm. could form in Vermont. The the thing it, the thing in Vermont is that really drug users are only brought into the sort of conversation when they when they're in recovery and can talk about their sort of, you know, there's that there's that separation of self that's demanded. You know, well when I was an addict, blah blah blah. But now I'm this. Mm-hmm. And so they're they're not brought in to talk about the experience of sort of being a a current drug user, um, because I think that mm-hmm. that really complicates the narrative um, in ways that make it difficult to kind of tell a consistent story. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, if we talk about homosexuality again, would we only let ex-homosexuals represent the yeah. homosexual community? <laughs> yeah. No, that's a good point. I think it's very, you know, it's got this kind of there's a there's a consistent narrative and it has to be, you know, I almost died and then I was saved and you know, now I'm slowly picking my life back up one day at a time. There's this, you know, there's not going 
going to be someone to to say, you know. I mean, a lot of the people that I exchange syringes, syringes with, many of them are, you know, they really they could really benefit from heroin assisted therapy. They could benefit from, I mean, so much, so many of their challenges have to do with being criminalized um, mm-hmm. and, you know, other sorts of things. And so they could really benefit from a system that just didn't rely on criminalization. Yeah. And what is wrong with using heroin in the first place? I mean, as long as people have a supply, what do they do? They they kind of sit there and nod off. They don't do much <laughs> yeah. of anything. You only yeah, have a problem when you take your heroin away. Hard, that idea is a hard sell, but people used to think that marijuana was, you know, going to turn you into kind of a raving um, serial murderer and rapist. So maybe that's a sign that there's some hope around um, heroin. I mean, if we get realistic about this, I think we were talking about this a little before the show started. Um, but, you know, alcohol is one of the worst drugs out there. Alcohol can make people violent. Lots of people get violent on alcohol. Alcohol has had a lot of prohibitions throughout history. Yeah. Um, the first one, I, I was doing a little research on this, and the first one was like a 2000 B.C. In Imperial China, they had alcohol prohibition. From mm-hmm. one of the emperors, he said, "I don't like people when they're drunk; they act crazy." And so, yeah. at least during his reign, alcohol was prohibited. Prohibited, but it's been very common. Um, I couldn't find a, a record of opium prohibition until 1726. That was also in yeah. Imperial China, and that was actually after the introduction—well, long after the introduction of smoked opium, which is much uh-huh. more powerful than you know to just eat it. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, the alcohol conversation is really, um, you know, and that's another one where I've noticed that um, people in order to say, well, we should legalize marijuana, say, oh, it's so much safer than alcohol. Um, and again, I'm I'm reluctant to sort of make those kinds of comparisons only because I see, you know, with this project I'm looking at, um, I see that these alcohol monitoring companies, these technologies are sort of, you know, they're, the state of the art is around the alcohol monitoring. So they would love nothing more more than for us to have increasing prohibitions of alcohol because that would just expand their potential customer base. So, you know, again, I think a sort of broad policy of, um, you know, harm reduction, no matter what it is, seems better. And, ra- and rather than differentiating um understanding them together, but that's, you know, I can see why people want to make other arguments around it. Um, I've just noticed over the years the increasing sort of, um, you know, anti-alcohol sentiment. Um, and I'm, I look, I'm always, I always look at that a little askance, like where's that going? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of the marijuana people can be really self-righteous about alcohol and about all the other drugs, you know, but Marijuana is an herb, it's not a drug, you know, which is not true. <laughs> well, that's the big, you know, the big thing is to try to get it categorized as not a drug. And that's historically kind of interesting is when does something become drug, you know? I mean, there's interesting, you know, there are really interesting historical accounts of, you know, temperance movements sitting around talking about the problem of liquor as they're drinking wine. And so these things were different, right? They weren't considered the same thing. Mm-hmm, they weren't mm-hmm. considered a drug, and they all weren't considered alcohol. So it's kind of, you know, that story is really interesting. And the success, I mean, the interesting success of 
marijuana is just seized, slowly people are saying it's not a drug. And so um, I'm sort of fascinated with when when does it tip the point over to not a drug? <laughs> yeah, that is very interesting. Um, you know, for me, I can't. I actually can't smoke marijuana because it makes me extremely depressed. I have um, many, mm-hmm. many years ago when I was very young. Well, when I was twenty, I kind of enjoyed it for about a year, and then it started making me depressed. And I just can't. I've been able to smoke it for decades, so it's yeah. not. Like when I compare alcohol and marijuana, I can't do marijuana. It has terrible effects on me. Alcohol I like, but I have to put certain limits on it. But all yeah. of these, all intoxicants. I mean, there's no, there's nothing wrong with the intoxicants, and there's yeah. nothing necessarily wrong with people who use intoxicants. It's people who don't use intoxicants well. That's the problem. Well, and it's difficult um, to to know how to use them well in a society that really puts so many prohibitions on them. I mean, you know, and I know it's controversial, the interpretation. I don't, you know, I don't know what happened. But, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman's a perfectly good example, I think. He was Mm -hmm. being used as this poster child for the problem of heroin addiction or, you know, addiction never leaves, we're all susceptible, or, you know, these evil traffickers preying on his desire. But, But what if really he said, you know what, I'm interested in using heroin. Where can I go and learn how to use it safely? He'd probably be alive, but be, but to say that we don't live in a culture where you can say that, where you can say, you know what, I think I want to use this thing. You know, I I want to use it safely. I want to know what that means to use it safely. I want to be around other people so that there's num- a number of steps so that you could see, you know, he's alone in his apartment in the bathroom um, because we don't have a culture that supports um, safe responsible drug use and I know you know when I say that this is like the nightmare of every parent group you know in the country but it just strikes me that we don't we don't have ways of talking about responsible use it's either you know you we and with things like heroin it's we say no use and that's just really just so Mm -hmm. unrealistic um Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and really willfully ignorant to Mm -hmm. keep insisting that prohibitions will stop people from using drugs. I mean, that's really just the sort of, you know, the that's just stupidity. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I don't know if a culture where we could talk about it would mean people wouldn't act stupid, but it means that a lot of the harms, again, I mean, it comes back to broad vision of harm reduction. A lot of the harms would be mitigated because we could talk about it. Mm-hmm. Well, I know in, in the needle exchanges I've been at, and you probably the same in yours you know we talk to people about if you're going to use heroin it's better it's safer to use it uh, in company not using it alone using alone is more dangerous um yeah everybody should have narcan it's hard to reverse yeah. your own overdose but somebody else that's there can reverse your overdose so you know we we talk to people about safe ways to use yeah well, and I think you were, so our, the harm reduction where I live is uh, we're a mobile, we're not actually, there is going to be a fixed site soon, but we've been operating as a mobile syringe exchange because the we, mm-hmm. we technically weren't supposed to be operating, although we were operating legally. Our meetings with people were, you know, 10 minutes, five minutes. Here are your syringes, mm-hmm. you know, and then we had to get in the car and drive, and this is a rural area, so we're driving quite a bit. And I mean, that's, again, a problem with, with a, a sort of, model that doesn't allow for sustained conversations with people for, um, you know, for 
the ability to understand that people use drugs in differently in different ways for different reasons at different times. Um, and so the stealth nature of a lot of harm reduction, unfortunately, makes it so that these bit longer conversations can't are just impossible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really important to have a drop-in space where people can come yes. in, where they can they can attend groups if they want to. They can attend safe yeah. using groups if they want to, or they yeah. can just hang out. They can have tea. I mean, lots of people they they're not even going to talk about anything for the first year, maybe. But maybe they'll yeah. come in and have tea for the first year, and then you know suddenly they they see nobody's bossing me around, nobody's trying to make me change in ways I don't yeah. want to, and then you know finally they're ready to open a conversation. Yeah, yeah, and that would be, I mean, that's a wonderful model. I think getting you know getting people to understand the value of that is really difficult. I think it's really difficult, again, because we have a broader way of understanding drugs. It's just kind of like it's all or nothing, sobriety is the only cure, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Well, it's always that way when you have the, the stigmatized scapegoat underclass. It doesn't matter if they're drug users, if they're black, if they're Jews, if they're homosexuals. It seems like, you know, every generation has its own scapegoat class and it's like well if those people would just go away everything in our society would be fine yeah 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 and drug users are sort of a convenient i mean they they're historically you know they've been a pretty convenient one and you know recurrent one Mhm. yeah since 1914 mm-hmm. <laughs> you know yeah you know we look just they look historically, you know, in the 1890s, the average drug, maybe 1880s, the the most common drug users was a middle-aged white lady that was getting laudanum, yeah. a patent medicine, and was baking cookies for Sunday school. Yeah. <laughs> well, what do you think? Are, are drugs courts successful? Do they have success or are they not successful? You know, that's such a... Um, I find that a complicated question. I mean, I think, you know, there have been evaluations that say they reduce recidivism and there have been evaluations that they're complicated because if you take out from your evaluation the people who didn't graduate, you're going to have higher success rates, but in some ways you don't want to take those people out because dropping out is not necessarily a success, although most of those studies would say that if the person drops out, it's because of the nature of their addiction. If they succeed, it's because of drug sports. I mean, I find the I find this sort of empirical stuff to be, some of it flawed, some of it's good, some of it's not that interesting because I'm interested in drug courts as a, as a, more, like a more philosophical and theoretical um, enterprise. So, you know, I think some people would say they, quote, work, it, usually work is measured by sort of recidivism one or two years out. Um, So, you know, but I guess the, I think the bigger question of sort of the, you know, the over um, criminalization of people, I think the bigger question of um, the fact that a lot of people can't access treatment unless they go through a drug court, I think the, the data on drug courts sort of skips those, what I think are those bigger questions. What are the procedural issues? What are the, you know, how are people who go through drug courts 
um, giving up certain rights that they should have. I mean, the National Association of Criminal Defense Attorneys has written an interesting report about that. So there are all these complicated issues. So do they work, I think, is a tricky question. I guess I would say work at what? (laughs) Do they work at making uh, the general public feel better about themselves? I think so. I mean, I think they make people feel really good. You know, it's like the New York Times loves them and has, you know, always has their sort of periodic editorials praising them. It makes, it's like a good liberal intervention. And I think, I think that, you know, it makes people feel good um, to think that people are getting treatment and we know that treatment is a good thing. Um, So I, I think that that's, I think that's one sort of, broader function of them. Yeah, it's a good liberal approach that the conservatives love as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And, you know, as a former treatment consumer, I don't think treatment is generally a good thing. I think most of them are really bad violations of basic civil rights. Um, I think they're not, they're generally not science-based. I think they're and they have horrible success rates. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you should I'm one interview. of the few people out there. Mm-hmm. Huh? Go ahead. Have, Go you, ahead. have you read, um, uh, I think it's Breaking Women by Jill McCorkle? No, i got to look that up. Yeah, you maybe want to interview her. She's very interesting. She's done research. It's a really good book. It's with NYU Press, and it's about um, the sort of privatization of treatment services in prison and she focuses on a particular program for women in prison Um, and she looks at this kind of idea of habilitation rather than rehabilitation and it's very fat I mean her sort of really in-depth look at the treatment and the kind of demands it places on women the kind of identity defacement that happens is really interesting I mean it really is a very bleak but interesting view of kind of treatment um, and how treatment functions in this entirely coercive environment. Um, so again, the question with something like that, is it better? It's it's almost it's almost kind of beside the point. I think the bigger issue is kind of what does what sort of commitments have we made to treatment and can we back out can we start to back out of them? Well my final question I guess would be uh back to deviance and mm-hmm. should we be should we be treating or should we be punishing deviance for the sake of deviance. I mean, to me, uh, something is criminal when one person infringes on the life or liberty or property of another uh-huh. person. This is a very classic, uh, you know, founding father's definition. And yeah. I, just, I think it is, that's it. You know, if I go to a prostitute and it's consensual, you know, that's not... Uh, hurting anybody's life, liberty, or property, or homosexuality does not, drug use does not, none of these victimless crimes. You know, so should we consider them deviant at all, or should we just remove them from the category of deviant behavior? Yeah, I mean, I I would say remove them. I mean, I think as as a sociologist who studies this historically, I mean, we know from one of the, you know, founding uh, thinkers in sociology, Emil Durkheim, that his point was that we always need the sort of pathological group because we need this. We need to maintain divisions between good people and bad people. So he thinks that's what society needs. I think 
it's really helpful to take a look at sort of who gets put in the deviant category. But I'm also, so I also study the history of crime and punishment. And, you know, I think one issue we really have here is that we way overuse prison. Um, we criminalize so many aspects of human life. We've given so much power to prosecutors and police, people involved in um, our system of punishment. But I think we need a much broader conversation um, about what it means to put someone in a deviant category and then what we do to them once they're there. So to me, it's not, you know, I, I'm I'm interested in thinking if addiction is not a disease and it's not a crime, what could we imagine? What, what's that other thing we could imagine it being? Um, and that I think is a more productive and, and, and how could that, and, and I guess that sort of fueled by kindness seems to me a much more productive uh, overall um, approach. Although a lot of people benefit from, the crime versus sickness and the com- and and the combination of those there's a lot of people i mean this is you know Stanton Peel and other people have talked about that sort of all the benefits that accrue to people who maintain it as a certain kind of deviance conceptually mm-hmm. but i think that's our work kind of culturally is to is to move away from that and and it's a challenge right to really challenge ourselves um, and challenge ourselves too. Okay, if someone does commit what we think is a crime, should they be should they be locked away forever? Is that is that constructive? Is that what a is that what we want our society to do? So I think it's I think we have to challenge ourselves. I mean I know I I have to do that with myself and sort of what you know this what I think of badness and what I want to do with people I people that are called bad. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there's some people I don't have. Uh, problem with calling deviant uh somebody like jeffrey dahmer that likes to murder his neighbors and eat them um yeah yeah, he's got we we need to be protected from jeffrey he's not a nice person to have around uh uh people that just if you just want to sit around shoot heroin all day and collect food stamps you know what's the big deal um yeah i think if you look at the, you know, if you look at, so if you use sort of Jeffrey Dahmer as your criteria, then really we need, I don't know, maybe one prison. I mean, I'm not even sure how many people there are who meet that criteria. Um, but you're right. I mean, I think, you know, that would be a very small percentage of the population would need to be incapacitated in any sustained way. Um, but we've gone the other route, which is we incapacitate people for virtually nothing. Um, and that's, a, that's we've really we've really skewed towards that. And, I, and, you know, I think our challenge is how to, how to come back from that. Hmm. And, of course, the other thing with, with addiction is that we, we fail to recognize that many addicts can be completely functional while addicted. Yeah. Um, if you look at cigarette addiction, uh, you know, 50 years ago, the majority of the U.S. population was addicted to cigarettes. They were smoking yeah. at their desks. It wasn't hurting their product productivity. Um, a lot of uh, great surgeons and doctors and intellectuals throughout history have been addicted to opioids, opiates. Yeah. And you know, it hasn't stopped them from working. Um, yeah. Alcohol is really bad. Alcohol messes you up really bad, and you really, if you're drunk all the time, you really can't do anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which makes it one of the worst drugs out there still. You know, even though it's my uh-huh. favorite. I recognize it's really bad. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, 
nicotine is not really bad at all. It's just the cigarettes are bad because of the tars that kill you. Yeah. If you get rid yeah. of all the tars, the nicotine is really pretty innocuous. Yeah. Well, I think we've actually run out of time, but uh, what would you like to leave us with uh, this evening before we close out the show? <laughs> what would I like to leave you with? Can you give me some hints? What thought? Your final uh, thought. Oh, what thought? Um, yes. I don't know. I mean, I would say from our conversation that you've actually given me things to think about, which is kind of the broader issue of, you know, how do we – how do we think about deviance? How do we designate sort of good and bad? And could we move beyond that? Could we move beyond categories of good and bad and just kind of accept things as they are? I think that's the real challenge that thinking about drugs, thinking about addiction, thinking about crime, I think that's the challenge that those things kind of pose. But I think if we don't if we don't take on that challenge, we're going to sort of keep it going in a direction that we've already seen is really destruction destructive and for lots of people deadly. So I think just thinking about that is really kind of what I would end with. Okay. Everyone, the book is titled Judging Addicts, Drug Courts and Coercion in the Justice System. And the author is Rebecca Tiger. Thank you for being our guest this evening. Thank you so much. And we'll see you all next week with another show. 